0: Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Colour. The lovely things that I have watched unthinking unknowing, day by day, that their soft dyes have steeped my soul in colour that will not pass away. Great saffron sunset clouds and larkspur mountains, and fenceless miles of plain, and hillsides golden green in that unearthly clear shining after rain. And nights of blue and pearl and long smooth beaches, yellow as sunburnt wheat, edged with a line of foam that creams and hisses, enticing weary feet and emeralds and sunset-hearted opals and asian marble veined with scarlet flame and cool green jade and moonstones misty and azure stained and almond trees in bloom and oleanders or a wide purple sea of plain land gorgeous with a lovely poison the evil darling pea if I am tired, I call on these to help me, to dream and dawnlit skies, lemon and pink, or faintest, coolest lilac, float on my soothed eyes. There is no night so black, but you shine through it. There is no morn so drear. O colour of the world, but I can find you, most tender, pure and clear. Thanks be to God who gave this gift of colour, which who shall seek shall find. Thanks be to God who gives me strength to hold it, Though I were stricken blind. Deborah Fitzgerald graduated with a Doctor of Arts from the University of Sydney after completing her thesis In Search of Dorothea, a biography of Australian poet Dorothea McKellar. Deborah is also a senior journalist, editor, and writer who has worked across major media organisations. Her first book, Sophie's Boys, was published in 2018. Today, I'm talking to Deborah Fitzgerald about her new book, Her Sunburned Country, the Extraordinary Literary Life of Dorothy and McKellar. Deborah Fitzgerald, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I love a sunburnt country. Every Australian knows those words, but most of what we know about Dorothy and McKellar begins and ends with those words. Have we since neglected the life and work of Dorothy and McKellar?
1: Well, I think so, um, in the sense that, uh, as you've alluded to, the poem still is um, very much a part of the national psyche even now um, we say I love a sunburnt country we say a wide brown land for me Um, there are numerous newspaper headlines that reflect this that quote her the poem is still very much a part of our public discourse it's often used by um, pro-climate change people and climate change people yeah people say oh but there were droughts back then and other people say oh yes but the way she described them, they weren't the way they are now. I think the poem has um, endured, I think, more than probably any other in Australian history, and yet most people don't know anything about Dorothea McKellar. They may know the name because of the poem, but um, most people don't know anything of her life, and I do think she's been neglected because, uh, because as I said, that poem is still very much part of, um, part of our, our public discussion now.
0: Dorothy McKellar was born in Sydney. Dunara was the estate in Point Piper, now one of Sydney's most exclusive suburbs. And by your account, it was an
1: idyllic childhood. Absolutely. Um, they were on five acres at Point Piper, if we can imagine that now, um, we Sydney siders. Five acres, which ran right down to the harbour, so harbour frontage. Um, A beautiful home, um, magnificent gardens, a long driveway with a a beautiful fountain, um, stables, servants' quarters, a polo field for her brothers to learn to play polo. Beautiful views across to Bondi and also of the harbour. She really had the best of both worlds in terms of this magical garden that fired her imagination, but also these iconic views of Sydney, of of both the ocean and the harbour. All of those things that that come to bear in her poetry later on were starting to be formed in those early years at this beautiful, beautiful property at Point Piper.
0: And it was primarily a garden full of native species.
1: Yes, there was, you know, Queensland gums and Sydney gums and um, all, all sorts of native plants. And she absolutely loved wandering around that garden, playing games, playing hide and seek, often engaging with the supernatural in that garden in terms of fairies and nymphs and dryads and um, all these people that she imagined or all these creatures that she imagined who came out of the trees and the bushes um especially at night. Um, yeah, she she had a vivid imagination from an early age, but um, uh, this particular garden um, really fired it up.
0: makes me regret that my great-grandfather didn't buy a block of land at Point Piper from your description.
1: <laughs> me too. <laughs>
0: So she clearly has very strong affinity for the Australian landscape, but she's also a very well-travelled woman. But her travels seem to have only strengthened those feelings for Australia and the Australian landscape.
1: Yes, I think she was very different in this way. Um, You know, her family was wealthy and and she was very privileged in that sense. And she did travel a lot, but I think she was unusual in how much she travelled. She really did travel the world. Um, And when you think about the fact that People were taking ships at that time, and it would be three months at a time on a ship dealing with terrible seasickness sometimes. But she travelled to the United States, to South America, the Caribbean, Japan, China, uh, the Middle East, um, all through Europe and on to England. But she was different in the sense that uh, while most of her contemporaries were still calling England home, her um, family background was Scottish. She certainly had some affinity with, with Scotland and she wrote about that in a poem called Heritage, actually. But she very much considered Australia home. And um, whereas, as I said, um, her, her friends and family would refer to England as home, she very stubbornly would not do that. And she got actually quite annoyed with her friends when they talked about going home and they were going to England. And she used to say, when I'm sailing back through the heads, into Sydney, that's me returning home. That's my heart. That's my love. Um, And, um, yes, I think she was quite defensive about the beauty of the Australian landscape because a lot of um, new Australians at that time really couldn't see the landscape and the beauty for what it was because it was so different to England.
0: At the beginning of this podcast, we heard one of Dorothea's lesser-known poems, Colour, which appeared in Closed Doors and Other Verses, published in 1911, and colour seems to be something Dorothy was particularly sensitive to. Was this affinity for colour present in her youth?
1: I think it's always been there. Even some of the poems when she was a child and she was just trying her hand at things, um, you can see the the colour coming in, Um, obviously not as much as it does later on, but I do think she was a particularly sensitive child and some of that comes out in her nervous disposition. Um, later in life, some of her, her troubles with what we might consider now to be anxiety and, and depression. Um, and she even sort of describes this in her diary. She feels things very keenly. And I think that is true even of the way that she sees the landscape and the, and the detail and the colour and some of the things the rest of us might miss. For whatever reason, her senses were finely tuned to those things, and I think that is borne out in her work. And there was some
0: very fine appreciation of her work at the time. The first manifestation of an Australian consciousness, one critic wrote, and you write, her language is clear and free of old poetic language that borrowed from Victorian verse. This clarity of expression is something that seems to set Dorothy McKellar apart from her contemporaries.
1: Yes, I think it is um, more clear, quite modern in some ways, even though Dorothea didn't quite manage to tip into modernism in terms of poetry at the time, she was very much still in that Edwardian, Georgian kind of period in terms of the way she approached her poetry. so she didn't she didn't have that kind of grit that was introduced um, with modernism, but it is much more plainly spoken. In terms of trying to capture the picture, she isn't using as many flourishes and and romantic flourishes to try to get her point across. She's really, really focused on painting the picture before her and I think that's where she does differ. It's very beautiful. Even her prose is very beautiful. That's the thing about when I was looking at her diaries at the Mitchell Library, I was so impressed with her Her prose just in her diaries, I was mesmerised by the descriptions and I felt like I was on her world travels with her. She was so um, beautiful in describing all the scenes in front of her and I think that does set her apart.
0: And let's talk about those diaries. They were the primary source for this biography. Did they provide the necessary detail and context that you as a biographer require in order to build a complete and convincing picture of her life?
1: Absolutely. uh, I would have been lost with the the diaries and certainly the diaries um, don't extend throughout her childhood there are some fragments of diaries which give you an idea and also she um, did do interviews where she talked about her childhood at various times Um, but particularly from around 1907 the year before my country was published her diaries are almost intact and they run through until the early 1930s and they're a fantastic resource um, with her writing about every aspect of her life. And, yes, she had a secret code which um, Geody Brunston was a person who did something called the Edited Diaries of Dorothea, which took some of the diaries between 1910 and 1918 and, and edited them down and it um, it was it was a great resource because she cracked the secret code um, long before I came along so that that was enormously helpful because I didn't have to do that so she just used little symbols triangles or pluses or minuses to represent letters and this was to protect her diary from prying eyes when she was talking about the romantic parts of her life obviously she didn't want um Mum or Dad reading about that, even though I'm quite sure it would have been still fairly um fairly prim and proper, um even if she had written it in plain English.
0: And she seems to have had a fairly complicated romantic life um, without attributing anything to anything. There's a very interesting long-term friendship with Ruth Bedford. You write about that as being clandestine in some sense.
1: Yes, yeah, she um she was friends with Ruth. Bedford for her entire adult life um, and in fact she probably came across her as a teenager in a book written by her nurse the nurse the, the woman who nursed her for the last 10 years of her life um, Adrian Howley um, she she wrote a, a, a volume called My Heart My Country and it was Dorothea I'm not sure whether Dorothea got some dates mixed up or she just forgot because by this time she was probably in her 70s or um, early 80s. So it just seems to me that there are dates that don't correspond with what really happened in terms of my research, in terms of her romances. Um, and also there was um, a, some discussion about Ruth being part of a private classroom at one of her friends of the family's houses. But I don't think uh, that's true because Ruth said in an interview, a radio interview some years later, that uh, she met Dorothea later than that. Um, But also there is a poem existing of Ruth's called Dear Land of Mine, which is a 1903 poem. And it's it's very similar in its content to My Country. So it appears to me there was some collaboration or uh, them writing to each other at the time or swapping poems and, and talking about what they were doing. Dear Land of Mine certainly has some characteristics that are very similar to my country, but Dorothea took it up to another level, which is why I think that poem became so successful. But with Ruth, they were friends uh, for most of their lives. They wrote together. They wrote a couple of novels together. uh, They acted plays together. They wrote characters for plays and they acted together, which wasn't usual for the time. It was something the Bronte sisters did when they were trying to... um, trial some of their characters for their novels. They did a lot of play acting. But Ruth and Dorothy, as as recorded in Dorothy's diaries, were fairly hot and heavy, if I can put it that way. They were very much in character, but it seemed to me that they were playing out the romantic life uh, of their characters. Dorothy would describe some of their scenes as thrilling and electrifying and she couldn't sleep and she couldn't get the feeling off her. And I feel that they definitely had a very intimate relationship. Um, obviously, I have no way of knowing whether they had a sexual relationship, but they were certainly romantic in their letters to each other and certainly very intimate. And they ended up sharing a flat in London for some time where they used to retire to their scribble corners, as Dorothea called it, where they were both, motor around the countryside as um, rich women of the time will want to do. Um, But I think she was a very important part of um, Dorothy's literary life as well. They discussed everything. They wrote to each other in character, all of the characters in their plays. They would continue the acting of the scenes through letters. So they would pretend to be the character, write in that character, sign the letter in that character. So... Yes, it was a very interesting relationship.
0: These days, any figure of importance from history is subject to the uh, revisionist eye, a reassessment, and there's been some criticism of Dorothea McKellar's work around the idea of her having a colonial eye and the absence of Indigenous Australians in her work. How do you answer that criticism?
1: Yes, I think a lot of Australians were struggling with um, the... Anglo Australian duality, as it was called. Um, even I guess we might call it the early cultural cringe. Uh, many Australians went to England to study and also to be part of the literary scene over there at the time in the early 1900s. And as I said earlier, many of them called England home rather than Australia. And it was the home country, you know, the home in inverted commas country. But Dorothea from um, a very early age recognised that for her Australia was home. She even talked about a time when uh, some of her teenage friends were hanging around after a game of tennis and they started bemoaning how awful the Australian countryside was compared to the beautiful neat and tidy gardens of England and that was where she got the first line of the poem about the green and shaded lanes that her love was otherwise. And she was walking home from that discussion with her friends and she said, well, you can can keep your green and shady lanes. I don't want them, it's the wide brown land for me. So that was percolating from very early on. And so I think she was discovering fairly quickly that um, she knew where her heart belonged and it certainly wasn't in England. Obviously, from a contemporary perspective, um, it's troubling that uh, there really wasn't a mention of Indigenous uh, people in her diaries, I think maybe once when she travelled to North Queensland. Um, So for my mind, the fact that they weren't part of her narrative at all in terms of her diaries or recollections speaks volumes about the time and the way that uh, people of her status weren't thinking about Indigenous people or the impact that colonisation would be having on them. Um, So I totally understand that people might be saying, well, you know, how can she have a a poem called My Country? It's perhaps not an appropriate name. I'd just like to say that I feel like I was writing um, a a story of a woman of her time and she was of her time and casual and specific racism was very common during that time. She loved what she saw in the landscape. She she had a particular connection to the land and that's what she was writing of. Core of My Heart was the original name of the poem. And I think that says something about what she was trying to get across, which was she was in love with this place. It later became My Country because that's part of one of the lines in the verse. And newspaper editors got hold of it and decided they'd toss that up there as the headline because it played into the nationalism that they were trying to sort of stoke after Federation um, and leading into the, into the First World War. So for people who say the very possessive title and it really wasn't her title, I think she came from a very simple place with the poem, which was writing about what she saw and writing about the impact that that had on her emotions. And I guess it's for others to decide how they want to interpret that now, but um, that's where I was coming from.
0: Deborah, it's been wonderful to talk to you, and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I've been talking to Deborah Fitzgerald about her new book, Her Sunburnt Country, The Extraordinary Literary Life of Dorothea McKellar. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit
1: bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au